it is going to solve all of our current problems, but it's going to create a whole new bunch of problems that we have no idea. Yeah. And I'm very excited to get to that point. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 346 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth, and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam, and I am not one. I'm not that. I'm Sam, and I'm the artist. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today's January 13th, 2020. You. Before we get started, we have a warning. There's profanity in this show. Uh, you know, so just it's going to be a good time. Uh, we'd also like to thank our supporters over at moneygrab.bscotch.net, whose money we grabbed. That's thank good. you very much. Uh, we liked it. Uh, all right. Now, we got just, oh, just a raging episode today. It's going to be just incredible. Get your so, rave sticks out. Get your neon glow-in-the-dark paint. Yeah, get your be. rave sticks and buckle your shoes, pilgrim. Because mm-hmm. here we go. Now, first of all, uh, I just have to sort of let everybody know that the James Webb Space Telescope has successfully deployed just about all of its cool stuff that everybody was worried was going to break. Okay, mm-hmm. so this telescope, we talked about a few episodes back. It's amazing. It still has a little ways to go, uh, but it's looking like you say everything ways, about it is mean- going... Swimming like a million lane. miles that it has Like to a jillion miles or something. Uh, but it's uh, it, this is the easy part. It's just got to float there, you know, and then use a little fuel to kind of like slow itself down enough to, mm. to lock it in, you know. Um, but it's looking like they were originally thinking they would have like five to ten years of fuel to keep it locked into its position because uh, it needs to kind of continually adjust a little bit and stuff. Um, but it turns out that they're probably at about 20 years of fuel wow. because they did a good enough job with it that now we're going to have dope-ass James Webb Space Telescope pictures for the next couple of decades. That's really uh, cool. So I'm very excited. Still a ways to go, but, uh, you know, it is kinda, it's always very cool to see these things come together. weird how, like, when it comes to space stuff, because it's in a vacuum once it gets out there, right? Yeah. So, like, if you can get it out there, then there's, like, there's no, no dust, you know? Like, nothing's going to, it's not going to rut. Like, nothing's going to happen to it unless it gets completely obliterated by a tiny a tiny rock yeah. Yeah. traveling at a million miles per hour or whatever, right? But, like. Which those, can happen, but the odds are. Odds are low. Low. But it can't happen. But, like, that's it. Just though, as an point. example, there's an asteroid that's 3,000 feet across that is doing a flyby of Earth this week. Did you know that? Ooh, that's happening. Yeah, when you say and apparently that happens. Though, well, like, here's the, the thing: dis- in, in in space terms, it's basically uh, in it's the basically same. Hitting it's us. basically hitting us, but in like human terms, it's so far away that it would probably take like a month in a spaceship to you know to <laughs> to get out to the point where it is. So like, it's that's the thing. There's all these little tiny rocks and things that are just zipping around through space, or huge ones um, that could hit. A satellite, or could hit, you know, mm-hmm. the telescope. But there's just all that but, space. Yeah, there's, there's just there. space out there. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, it's also funny when you see things like like an asteroid belt and how that gets conveyed in something like Star Wars, where yeah, they, they like warp a, in and they're like, "Oh no, we're in an asteroid belt." And and like, like, next to each yeah, other. Yeah, there's aster- Yeah, except like because of gravitational forces, if there were asteroids that big. Right, that were that that were that close Mm. together in space, then by the time you got there, they would just have merged together into some kind of a planetoid or something, right? So, like, if you go to the actual asteroid belt in our, which we do have one in our own solar system, you would see zero asteroids. As in, like, you You if you're if you manage to get to one asteroid in there and you look around and you and you you looked every direction, you would not see a single other asteroid because the next one is like a billion miles away. So you know. I love how they it draw so them tiny, you know, right next to each other on the little map where it's yep. like, it looks like a like, like a little gravel path, you know. But actually, yeah. The thing is, it is though. You know, it's just that it's more like yeah, it's more like if you kind of like went around your house with a handful of maybe like a thousand specks of dust, and then did like a one mile loop around your house and just like threw a speck of dust, you know, mm-hmm. every now and then. Uh, that's kind of like the, the scale. And you, and if you went back and tried to find one of those specks of dust, you yeah, know, you're gonna do. have a you're gonna have a bad time. So, anyways, it's the scale that that's that this operates in is is pretty cool. Um, and again, like this telescope is trying to look back to the beginning of the universe, uh, which is also that's pretty cool too. It's an so, ambitious, yeah. what an ambitious goal, you know? Good for you, telescope. 
Yeah, I kind of feel like it was wasted though because they weren't like, "What if we make a telescope that looks into the future?" You know, kidding? Yeah, NASA, get on it. Yeah, I feel like all these government institutions are just so like they're just clinging to the past, so bad, and they just won't let it go. You know, it's like who cares where we came from? You know, what's what's going to happen to thirteen trillion years into the future? Mm -hmm. What stocks should I buy? You know, that's what I want to know, NASA. Yeah, but only tell me, because if you told everybody, then, you know, we'd all buy it. And then it technically was a good idea because the price would go through the roof. (laughs) (laughs) But only for Uh, people who already had it, you know. Yeah, because that's how stocks work. All right, now, Sam, you got a goofy life story that I would like to hear about. Yeah, this this one's a a short one. Uh, Let me see if I can can get it out in the proper proper order, which was – uh, Dine has been having some hilarious, like sort of extra trouble with picking the correct word at the correct time, sort of thing as we're chatting about stuff. So yesterday, I go and take the trash bag out of the little trash can, getting ready to take it outside. And Dina leans over and she sees some wrappers in there. And she says, Oh, she says, You can't recycle these. I, I was like, Yeah, this is the trash. And then she looked at me and she goes, oh, sorry, I'm deaf. And I was like, the fuck just happened? <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Exactly. So she went to say I'm blind, right? But uh-huh. also, of course, so it, this was like these two weird errors back to back where she reached into a trash bag saying that this couldn't be recycled. And I was like, yeah, obviously, because it's in a trash bag. We're, we're good. <laughs> we're good to go. And then she's like, sorry, I'm deaf. And I was like, what is happening right now? <laughs> so put, put your brain back together. Yep. What's going on? Get it back together. I think every so often you have one of those, like, one of those errors is just kind of like, hey, you know. But both of them back to back, like, both, we were just in a giggle fit the whole night, basically. Because, you know, <laughs> it was just such a, like, a hilarious combo of mismatching of the things. So. Well, so, something we've talked about about in the past is this idea of, like, uh, of beat frequencies with randomness. Mm-hmm. Where, like, maybe, like, on average, once a week, you'll, like, forget a name. Or you'll mm-hmm. forget a forget a, a word, an easy word or something like that. But it's just random, like, the thing that you forgot. It doesn't mean anything, mm-hmm. Right. But then one week, you'll forget like five things, and then you think, oh, no. <laughs> I'm losing it. It's, it's finally happening. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm losing my grip on reality. And then it turns out the next week, it's totally fine. You know? yep. it's very, I think it's very easy to, to yeah, if randomness get caught at that. evenly distributed, then it wouldn't be random. You know? Then it's just a, a rhythm. Yeah. Now it's know? just a thing that happens in a predictable way. But of course, the best is when things happened so close together that it, I still remember that time when I broke like four glasses in one day. (laughs) I'll break a glass in the kitchen or whatever, maybe once every few years. And then just one day, just four totally different kinds of glass things Mm -hmm. under different circumstances. Like one, I was just washing. It's just washing it. And it just broke. (laughs) Yeah. That's I think, I I'm going stuff, to bed. That's what I think at that point. Yeah, it usually just <laughs> slips out of my hands because it's all soapy, you know. Like that's yeah, number one. It shoot, shoots, glasses. shoots across the the room like a like a glass seal. Oh. Uh, <laughs> all right, so studio news. We just got a couple interesting things to talk about. One is an announcement, and one is kind of a an interesting like philosophical mm-hmm. concept. Okay, so news of the week is that. Crashlands is launching on Apple Arcade, uh, yeah, or rather, yeah. it already has. By the time you're listening to this this episode, uh, we weren't totally sure of the launch date, uh, and it kind of squeezed itself between podcast episodes, so <laughs> we weren't quite able to announce it uh, in any other way, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, that's cool. It's it's Crashlands Plus, uh, which means that it's a it's a version of the game that is has been tweaked a little bit for for Apple Arcade gameplay. It's all it's all the same, but um, in terms of like some of the uh, web features and stuff like that that exist in the other versions of the game, uh, this one's a little different in that regard. It's self-contained, so it's not going to uh, talk to Rumpus or you know our other like cloud save systems. Yeah, it just um, uses the iCloud system that. Apple Arcade mm-hmm. uses. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And kind of the thing there, too, is like if you already were playing Crashlands on iOS, then, you know, you've already got the version that, you know, has the save migration. And so this is kind of like if people are, if people yeah, were arcade. on the fence about it, you know, whatever, but it's like, yeah, I mean, it's in arcade now. So you can just pick it up and, and play it. Um, 
then it's kind of like a separate, you know, group that we're a new yeah, a I'm, new group of people who are going to play. Yeah, I'm really cool. excited to see uh, see what that kind of pickup is on because it'll be our first mm-hmm. game uh, in arcades. So I know that there's been quite a few games that have seen a good amount of success in there. And of course, with any you know subscription service thing, you always see there's a massive massive power law in effect as far as like uh, you know, what things what people are playing. Yeah, what sticks. Um, but the thing is, like Crashlands 2's sort of recipe is in a lot of ways basically a a, what I would just say, massively improved and um, embiggened version of what's in Crashlands. You know what I mean? So it's one of those things where, like, if that one works, you know, relatively well uh, in that subscription service, that's a good feather in the cap, I think, for us going forward to be like, okay, yeah, we'll be good, uh, even with all the design changes we made for the second one, or especially with, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so really, well, yeah. Well, this is a good segue too, because, because as we, we kind of mentioned in the podcast, um, over the past few couple couple months, I guess mm-hmm. that we've kind of entered into a, a tool tools development phase um, because as we've been working on Crashlands Two, we have all these um, ideas for how we want the game to operate. That's just a a huge step up from what original Crashlands was doing. But where the where the step up is is not just in like visuals and audio and like game mechanics and you know just like all like there is that and that's all it feels way way better but the hard thing is also in just how intricate and deep the game systems are mm-hmm. and when we talk about depth oftentimes we just we mean there are a lot of relationships yeah, interconnected between things so um, in the original game things were fairly monolithic. So you would you would uh, build a new crafting station, get all the recipes, and then you kind of knew it was going to be in it. There was going to be some weapons, some armor, some tools, you know, whatever. Um, and so things were kind of, um, kind of delivered in almost sequentially as opposed to mm-hmm. via branching paths or having a lot of player choice about how you're going to mix and match aspects of your gameplay experience, right? And so... Uh, Crashlands Two is a lot more. Um, I'd say like choose your own adventure yeah, in the sense freeform. that you. It's a lot more freeform, which means that things aren't as linear. Things are more uh, are more sort of like built on interdependencies and relationships between each other, and trying to manage that through the way the old our old ways of programming and making games just became untenable. Mm-hmm. So. Having you know something that is connected to sixteen layers deep of branching decisions and trying to just like work your way through, you know some some code that kind of sets that up in twenty different places in the in the game project is just impossible, right? Mm-hmm. And we kind of found that that uh, we have just like a little bit of the game made, and even that provides just like hours and hours and hours of engaging gameplay, but it has become just increasingly impossible to add more things. Mm-hmm. In terms terms of the the cognitive load of having to think about how to fit them in. The event that kicked us off was actually a play session with my, uh, with my wife, Diana, who, uh, you know, I watched her play. And then I came away from it as a, as we've talked about before on the cast, like the best thing to do if you're making a game, uh, whenever you get to a relatively stable point is to sit down with someone with a notepad, take some notes. You know, I, when I came away with probably, I think like 50 tweaks, almost all of them just tweaks to how things Worked like moving, moving the point at which you get access to uh, this thing, kind of reshaping a few of these uh, relationships, changing some of the values, recipes, like all sorts of just little tiny tweaks to kind of make the experience a little bit uh, smoother for a new player. And well, it's tweaks, but then also probably about twenty new things, which are actually fairly straightforward in the sense that they fit within the existing concepts we'd already created. But it was like, oh yeah, we should add, you know, add this node between these other two nodes and this mm-hmm. progression path. We're actually like, like yeah, that. split this one into two, you know, like all sorts of other little, just yeah, yeah. a lot of- Well, yeah, and on the face of it, it's like, yeah, those are just like little adjustments to the existing like layout or whatever, mm-hmm. right? But because of how interconnected everything is um, and how many different systems are talking to each other, that Sam basically had, you had to write down all those things, right? And then package it up and then hand it to me, and then I would need to essentially like pause development of mechanics and game systems and visual, you know, whatever else in order to do, like go through the code and adjust all of these things, right? Which is not, and also while I'm doing that, we can't get sound effects implemented. We can't, you know, we can't do any other thing other than just make these little tweaks um, 
to, to the game. So yeah, so we hit that and we looked at it and we were like, this is just not going to, we need to change. We need to change the way that we think about how we get stuff put into our games. Um, and the question and so, was really, the guiding question was, instead of saying, okay, you know, as we talked about the podcast, go, instead of saying, okay, so that's the bottleneck, how do we speed Seth up? It was, okay, uh, how do we, where do we want the bottleneck actually to be and how do we get it there? So saying, instead, let's make the bottleneck how much content we can produce. Just strictly, yeah. that's what the bottleneck is, as opposed to the implementation of that content. And that shift then is what started us on the path of this fabricator. Uh, yeah, and if you, think about the, yeah, if you think about the concept of, in DevOps, we talk about cycle times, which is just like, how long does it take something to go from, in the, in the case of an, like a normal, like a manufacturing business, they talk about uh, going from an order to a delivery, right? Which mm-hmm. is like, the customer says, I want this, you know, car. How long does it take it, does it take you from them saying that to them having the car? That's your, that's your cycle time, right? Um, and so in the case of making games, it's basically uh, having a designer look at the game and say, wow, we really need to have this new weapon or we need to have this new game system or whatever. And then from that, that moment mm-hmm. where they say that to the other person uh, or to, to the team or whatever, from that moment until it's actually in the game and iterated on to the point where it's like Hold done, on. right? That's your cycle time. And the idea then with uh, this next phase of our of our tools development is to basically get those cycle times from, in some cases, weeks for certain things uh, to minutes, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so that so that the only limitation here is just is just uh, well, what would it be? It I was, guess it's just literally how, just how quickly we can make stuff. Yeah, <laughs> how uh, many as opposed to as opposed about. to getting it in exactly. to the game. Exactly. So. Uh, so we've been working on this this thing called the Fabricator, which is essentially a way to um, it's a no code solution, meaning you don't need to be a programmer to use the Fabricator, but uh, it's a way for us to sort of like set up all the different game data in a way that non programmers can interact with it and add things. When we say game data. Game data could be anything. It could be like how fast does the player run? Or here's a creature that has all these different behaviors. Or here's a loot table that you know comes from this resource. You know what, whatever it is. Um, so ga- since since game data is just like sort of an amorphous anything, then a, the big challenge has been sort of like coming up with systems to still create rules and a good interface for interacting with all this stuff. You know, but so far we've kind of hit a point where it's like it's really ramping up. The fabricator is really ramping up in terms of us being able to start to actually see um, what it's capable of. And we haven't fully plugged it in yet. Mm-hmm. Like we're still, we're still developing and hooking process. it in. We're hooking its tent- tendrils into all of the different uh, pre-existing parts of the game that now need to be sort of like re- rebuilt to hook mm-hmm. into it. But uh, one of the things that's just kind of blowing my mind just like over and over again is I'm going through all of the code that I've written over the past year for Crashlands 2. Um, so much of which is basically code to just manage data. So it's like, okay, here's a library of uh, recipes in the game. Okay, what's the information that we want to have on these recipes? How do they how do they work, right? But uh, when I look now at the way, for example, that those recipes are set up, they're really, really rigid and simple and hard to change. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they can't do a lot, and it's also going to be a huge pain in the ass to expand upon them. So if we ever said like, ooh, it would be super cool if there was like a recipe that like once you got a certain I don't know, achievement, had a, a, a 50% chance to give you some kind of an extra bonus item you know, of, of some kind. Uh, nope. Can't can't do, do that under the existing paradigm, uh, or not without you know days of like reengineering the the game architecture, right? And as I'm working on the the fabricator, I'm looking at this recipes thing, and I'm like, we can do whatever we want now, mm, just yep. whatever, right? Because yeah. because the hardest part of all of that is coming up with a way to represent the data of like how do you how do you tell the game, hey, I want this recipe to have a random chance to do blah, right? Um, well, if the data, if the way that you make blobs of data is standardized, then that's an easy question to answer, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then it's just up to the game to just read the data and do stuff with it. Uh, but the 
the slow part of like composing all of the data and making all those recipes and you know tweaking all the little values like that's actually now super super, super easy. Fast. Yeah. And so as I've been going through all the game systems, I've just been realizing that it's, it's almost like a horrifying realization that much of not much all all, all of this all of the game systems that that I've ever worked on have not been built to maximize gameplay potential or fun or whatever. They've been built to maximize those things, but while also trying to make them easy for me to work on. Yes. Within right? the context of Game Maker specifically. Yeah. 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 And so it's basically <clears throat> saying like the game or the games that we've made actually weren't able to be what we really truly wanted them to be because we had to cut so many ideas mm-hmm. in order to keep them fairly easy to, to work with basically. Yeah, in to the code able, base. Yeah, to be able right? to work on them at all. Right. Yeah. And the, the fabricator is kind of illustrating that like if you if we have a new tool that just fully replaces that side of things, the data management side of things, um, then suddenly you can do just what kind of whatever you want, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which again is going to be its own curse that we will have to figure out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, but I prefer that uh, curse. You know, there's you want to choose your problems as we've talked about. That's a problem I would yeah. rather have. Yeah, and honestly, like this, this fabricator is still—it's quite a ways off. I mean, it's—it's it's, it's probably like it's probably like weeks away from from having even like a like a local version of it that you can kind of just like use on like fully use on your own and change the game on your own. And then we still have to figure out the collaborative part, like how do we sync, you know, your work across mm-hmm. teams and stuff like that. But like, um, but it's it's going to open up so many possibilities and save so much time that like even if it took the next year to make, which it it won't. Thank God, but like, even if it did, we would still come out so much on top. It would be nuts, right? So yeah, yeah. Uh, this I'm, is the thing with with good tools, right? And also with development of those tools, because like the first, I don't know, Seth, you've been working on this for now two months or something. Is that? I think it was mid October, right? Yeah, about two months. It was. Well, like it, yeah, it was. Yeah, coming up on the two month mark, we did have. Uh, yeah, we had a long break and stuff. Th- like yeah. yeah, two and a half weeks of off time. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, so when, when Seth and yeah. I. Yeah, so Mr. and I were collaborating really extensively, especially for the first like six weeks or something. Um, and so we're both kind of like dumping nearly full time hours into this, right? Mm-hmm. And we have a we have a vision of what why we're doing this, what it's supposed to look like, and what those gains are going to be. But we also, as we're working on that project, can see just how big the project by itself is before we actually get to realize any of that, right? It's a long oh my god, ways. I went to, I went to bed just like with cold sweats. So many times I was just like, yeah. oh my God, yeah, is this is the right move. Yeah. There's this fear mm-hmm. the whole time of as, as, as you keep on developing a big tool like this, it, it, it's basically, it's a, it's a full piece of software, right? So you're developing some big tool and again, you know why, right? But every day you're spending on that tool and not doing the thing that the tool is for, then that little, your little worry counter goes up where it's like, what if I get to some point and like, I can't actually like finish this thing. Cause it gets, it just, it just in the beginning, too, oh, yeah. Or, yeah. it keeps growing actually in scope because we underestimate. Right, but that's it's just you the model worse. of what we think we're doing yeah. uh, is simpler than the reality. For something that's complicated, because you just can't envision all the little pieces until you run into them. You know, as you go. I mean, so, four weeks of this was literally building an entirely new interface development language to be able to build yeah. the fabricator. Right. So, like, it. There's a point where I'm working on this other thing, and I'm like. Is this, I mean, does this even really have to do with the thing, like the problem that we're trying to solve, you know? And like, now that that's done, the speed at which we've been able to build the interface for this thing is just crazy. It's hilarious. But there's this metaphor of like, like walking through the, the woods, right? Where like, there's a, when you first enter, like all you can see is the trees, just some, some trees, right? And you're like, oh, like this doesn't seem so bad, right? I know trees. This is straightforward. And you start to get in there and it starts getting darker, right? And there's way fucking more trees than you thought about. And also, at first, if you look back, you can still see the nice open grassy clearing where you came from, right? And you're like, I'm in danger, (laughs) I think. But also, I'm trying to get somewhere. And so, like, but if I turn back now, then I won't have to worry about any of this stuff anymore, right? And then you go deeper and deeper. And pretty soon, you can't... 
you're, you're past the point of no return, right? Like you, if you look back, you can't see the light anymore. And if you look ahead, you can't see it either. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's when, you know, people are, you're in the woods, right? Well, yeah, you're in the woods. It's, it's a, it's a tough spot to be in and it feels like it's never ending. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also there's that point where like, before you get to the halfway point, if, if you're, if you start thinking about your only goal is just to, just to get out of the woods. Right. Mm-hmm. Then before that halfway point, your best move is still technically to just turn around. <laughs> but once you pass that threshold, you got to keep going. You got to keep going forward. Um, and I, I feel like there's so much of that just like psychological overhead of doing something really, really big like this, where you're just constantly battling that feeling of, should I just turn around? You know, oh, yeah. like, especially just- at the beginning, because the nature of, any uh, well-architected thing, especially a tool that's meant to do something for you, is that you have to. The more you think about it ahead of time, the better off the outcome is going to be, right? And the more like modular and careful you are as you're starting to assemble it, and the more questions you think out ahead on, like answer even if you can't solve them yet, right? So you spend a lot of time just like thinking through, answering questions, trying stuff, researching, you know, prior art, like doing all that kind of stuff, and just nothing is happening. Like you don't, yep. you don't have any out, output. Right? I think I think during that, especially during that first couple of weeks, I think at least fifty percent of the days were just entire days of talking through the implications of certain design decisions. Mm-hmm. Yep. Of like, how, what if we set up the data like this? What does that mean? And then, and then yep. we would be like, okay, well, that's kind of like these three other things that already exist. Let's look at those and then talk through those. And then, to, and then we would always end up with some new thing that, you know, didn't exist, but we had to spend just eight hours mm-hmm. <laughs> just talking mm-hmm. through it. And then you feel like, and also, you know, in the woods metaphor, it feels like you were just standing there in the woods, just looking yeah. around. Right? <laughs> really, what you were like, doing was like you, know, you were like cleaning, you're charting up a your path, space, you know? charting a path, like doing all kinds of stuff, right? And and the fun thing is that when you if you approach it in that way, and you have that like slow process where it just feels like the whole time you're just like it's been a long time, and and I don't even have anything close to what I'm trying to get, right? Um, because you're laying all of this foundational work, and then you start moving on it. And then it's still most of your time is like, oh shit, I didn't, we didn't think about this. So now we step yeah. back again, redesign, like, you know, right? And because that those foundational layers are where so many of the hard questions are if you want to have it done well at the end, right? Yeah. And at some point though, there, you hit that critical threshold where you've now created enough of that foundation that you're starting to move ahead on the actual problems its, itself after the foundation of being able to solve those problems, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it starts to accelerate, right? And then it just yeah. keeps on accelerating because you're you're building up this on this really strong base to do this. And I think this is the thing that I always I always love that phase. And and the reason that these things don't worry me at like too much is because this is what always happens, right? Like what always happens with good tooling is at first just nothing, nothing happens. And you're just like, oh my God, you know? And then uh, but if you stick to it and and then finally start doing the thing, the gains on the other side are, are hilarious. Like mm-hmm. Seth implemented a color picker in this like, you know, UI interface. In the fabricator. Right? In the fabricator. We were like, actually, it was, it was literally last, was it this Monday or last Monday? We were talking about, do we need to have some kind of like a shortcut thing here where, where we can like enable Sam to just like edit the raw data while this fabricator, yeah. UI, I think it was last Monday, like while this is being built. And then literally three days later, um, we had gone from not having the UI like we just had a side period. Yeah. So we just didn't have the UI, didn't have any editors at all, right? Three days later, we had everything visible in the thing, icons on everything. The uh, the the editor could be populated with all the values of the things, right? And you there change were, stuff. There were already yeah. checkboxes for like certain kinds of editors. You could like click on yep. fields and do stuff. And then here we are a week after that, and we've got it, like filtering, data validation. We've got color pickers. Yeah, we've got it's just like. It's just mm-hmm. flying, yeah. right? Yeah, and, yeah, and all the all these things are, of course, um, they're incremental, right? So, like building the building the color picker reveals a bunch of new techniques that make it easier to build the next data next editor. Thing. You know, it, it just yeah. keeps going. It keeps going. So, look, what's interesting about this yeah. though is that you know we talk a lot about we've talked a lot in the past about not building your own uh, engine, actually, right? And yeah. I think what's interesting about the fabricator is it's definitely the closest thing to uh, building our own engine that we've done ever. Um, and so I know a lot of people listening to this who do their own uh, dev who work in maybe Unity 
or Unreal will be like, oh, well, you know, why wouldn't you just pick uh, an engine that has support like this right out of the gate? Um, so I guess what's the what's the thought? So here, here's my answer to that. My answer to that is is game engines like Unity or Unreal or Game Maker very specifically optimized for for one thing, which is m- gameplay, mm-hmm. right? So they have tons and tons of features for managing meshes and animations and collisions and rendering and, you know, whatever. Um, but there are a couple things that they universally just suck at, mm-hmm. okay? So one is uh, is interfaces. Mm-hmm. I-, I don't care who you are, whatever engine you've used, uh, if you try to code up an interface in a game engine, it is not the same as, for example, making a web page, which, by the way, is an interface, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like a web browser, it has so many different ways that you can easily compose interfaces because that's all that it is. That's its whole job. And specifically, the interfaces that flex right. that flex to fit basically whatever. Whatever's situation. happening. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, well, and yeah. it also and, has that, that kind of abstraction that you want, which is you move stuff out of the code logic layer, right? Because the browser does the browser does all the rendering. It's it's yeah. now a declarative or descriptive sort of thing where you just exactly. say, here's how I want this to look, right? And as long as you, you know yeah, how to you describe know, that, the browser's like, cool, and then it just does it. Cool. You said you wanted a picture that's like, well, yeah, you should put like width equals 640. Yeah, I know what that means, and I'll just do that, yeah, right? Just renders a picture. Um, yeah, and so... And or if you didn't put with the browser's like yeah no problem like I yeah I've got enough information to kind of infer some stuff here you know yeah. you don't need to tell me everything yeah um, it has a whole bunch of like sensible defaults that are actually you know less sensible today because you can't really change the defaults you know but yeah. but that's still like you can make a web page that doesn't look like shit uh, knowing almost nothing about like it won't look amazing but like it can you can make a thing that looks perfectly respectable and readable and doesn't look like shit with very little knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And so then, so that that's one thing that all game engines suck at, bar none, is making it incredibly easy to develop interfaces, right? So that's why, so that's why a big chunk of this fabricator development time was actually building something we call cake frames, which is our, our own interface tooling mm-hmm. layer. Um, uh, and then the second thing is this idea of creating uh, no code solutions to managing game content. Mm-hmm. So when I say no code, I mean, you don't need to use Git. You don't need to do like Git merge diffs. You don't need to know about branching. You don't need to, oh, you don't even need to have the, like the software like Unreal or Game Maker. Like, you, don't, you wouldn't even need to have the software on your device, right? You would just like open the game and in the game, be able to edit the game. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. no, nothing does this, um, and we well, think the way about that it. the way that engines like Unreal and Unity sort of get close-ish to it mm-hmm. is they allow you to build interfaces within the editor, mm-hmm. yeah, and then they give you some amount of yeah you know, of dynamic on the fly uh, ability to edit stuff, so that you can be tweaking variable values and modifying stuff while the game is running, mm-hmm. right? And those yeah. values are changing on the fly. Yeah, and they but do they have some separate. really great. They do some great things. Like they have, they have cool stuff tools. like you know, uh, Unity has their you know like their shader graph thing where you can compose shaders using you know, mm-hmm. um, in a lot of cases no no code you know and stuff like that. So like they do have a lot of no code solutions for managing preconceived ideas of what a game is supposed to have, like shaders, right? Mm-hmm. The problem that we run into is basically if we say like, okay, we want to maybe want to have like something called a biome where we want to list out the different uh, kinds of terrain that can be in that biome. And then each type of terrain has a bunch of rules in it about how it wants to spawn resources or mm-hmm. something. So all that really is, is that's just a bunch of very specific data that we have invented mm-hmm. and it has rules, right? So um, so if I said, for example, okay, here's uh, terrain and I, instead of, instead of uh, having it spawn trees, I'm going to just like point it at some completely random thing, or I'm going to put like just the number five in there instead of an actual tree. Mm-hmm. What happens, right? Um, well, it breaks now, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it yeah. breaks because I because I I didn't respect the rules of the data, um, and so what we're doing with the fabricator is all of the data has rules and it has you know like a pre-built structure to it, 
um, so that you can just go in there and you can't, you can't mess it up. Mm-hmm. You, you go in there and you can, you can make adjustments to the game and it's self-reinforcing and it will tell you if you've, if you've done something that, the, that doesn't work with the game, it will tell you what the problem is and you can fix it and you won't be able to you know, run the game until you, you fix that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's just the idea of sort of like separating out the, the data layer from the game mechanics and you having the game mechanics read from that data and sort of com- compile the game out of it. Yeah, um, and again, it's the so, same ideas on the web or, or with like a markdown file for those who know about that. Like the, there's a concept of a markup language, which is a thing that's not, it doesn't do something. Which is right? like HTML is like HTML. Hy- hypertext markup language. Yep. Yeah. It's so it's a language, like it's a thing you learn. It has technical specs. You have to, it has rules. It has grammar. It has, like it has all the stuff you have to follow. Right. And if you follow the idea is if you follow those rules uh, and you know them, then you can describe how something should look, right? Yeah. And so you're not writing code. You're not. You were just right. You're just writing a document that a that a program is going to read and then turn into a web turn, page. And then render. Yeah. It's going to. So you're describing what it looks like, right? And like SVG images are the same deal. Right? That's, that's just a thing describing what, where all the things are, like how, what their shapes yep. are and all kind of stuff. Um, and so the beauty of these things is that you can then make it so that different kinds of work can be put in the right place. So that that's the, like in, in web dev, there's, a, there, there's always blurry lines between all the different disciplines, right? And on web pages, you can add code through JavaScript to make things happen, right? But at the core, you actually just have these separation of concerns where you have like, let's describe how it looks mm-hmm. and then let's make it do things, right? Mm-hmm. Because the thing that makes it do things also understands how the data works, right? So you've got a renderer that just does stuff that the person writing the writing the document doesn't need to care about. You've got yep. somebody else or the same person who's now writing some code to manipulate that thing. But what the code is doing is basically just like messing with that, right? It's like all following the same rules. And then if it yeah. needs to talk to something else entirely, well, then presumably it knows how to do that too, right? So you just get to remove all of these concerns and like break it apart into this data yeah, layer. So I, so I think to kind of like bring back to your question about like making your own engine, yeah, it'd be like engine. saying, I want to make a web page. I'm going to go ahead and program up my own browser, right? right. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 no. You're, you're putting the work where the problems are already solved. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. browsers exist, right? But if you want, if you say like, I want to make not just a web page, but I want to make some kind of like a web application that has all of these like really specific things happening in it mm-hmm. that nothing else does, right? And then yeah, you this find is, that- and This is what we call front-end frameworks. So this is like yeah. what React is, what Vue is, what Svelte, like all these things for anybody doing web dev. Like yeah. you've heard those terms or you actively work in those. That's what they are. The engine yeah. is the browser, right? Yeah. And so there's all these different tools that exist to use the browser in new ways, right? Um, but they are not a browser, right? So in this sense, we basically have like GameMaker is our engine and it handles all of these sort of like solved problems of making games, mm-hmm. right? Collisions and rendering and, you know, just like objects and basic stuff like that. And um, being cross-platform, which is one yes. of the <laughs> yeah. harder sides. That's, the, big, that's the biggest thing, yeah. Yep. And so so then for us, it's basically saying, okay, now we need an additional layer. We need a framework that lives on top of that, that lets us make the games that we want to make using the yeah. engine, right? So I think yeah. a good way so to that's the difference. I think a, an alternative also sort of explanation of what's good about this approach and what we haven't seen from uh, things like Unity and, and Unreal and stuff like that is most designers have a spreadsheet or an Airtable or- Oh my God, a Google Doc. A Google Doc. Like most of the time you're doing a lot of your design work actually in those tools. Because again, we're talking about about data about how the game needs to work. Uh, Even just collecting together like what, uh, say a bunch of new recipes in this game are going to have in them etc. You're typically going to be doing that uh, in an external program to the game. Even in even if in Unity or something like that, you have the ability to, uh, with some widgets, you know, uh, basically modify certain things on the fly or, or whatever else, uh, do some editing. Because the game engines themselves, even with those widgets and stuff like that, the widgets are still largely oriented toward uh, not necessarily data Pro- programmers. Yeah. And well, uh, not only that, but if you look at if you look at a Unity project, you're seeing everything. Yes, and that's you don't you don't only see the data. The data is mixed in with the the so code stuff. Yeah, right. And so yeah. I think for me, what a good way to, to explain the benefit that we're trying to hit and what we're really uh, kind of targeting with this is that 
that separation allows us to build a tool that is actually the game, is in the game. Uh, so there's no longer like a hit play on like a reboot the whole game sort of a thing uh, to be able to see your changes. There's validation happening in real time for stuff you're putting in. And then rather than as a designer having to work uh, always within like external data management software, so spreadsheets, Airtable, whatever, uh, you can actually do that work inside of the game. As opposed to, like, you know, basically the tool is actually sophisticated enough to handle that data aspect of games as opposed to uh, having to always essentially compose all that stuff externally and then do kind of a translation over. Well, and that also it. extends to uh, documentation, right? Because yes, so much of what we've heard uh, and also dealt with ourselves but and heard from other uh, people at other studios is that documentation is one of those, this is true for all software, it's just one of those like unsolved shitty problems, right? Where... <laughs> And when I say unsolved, I mean there's a million little solutions out there, right? But it, like, it's always a bad. Experience. None of which get at the heart of the problem. Yeah, and uh, and what we what we did with the design of the fabricator is that the documentation, because like, because what is the documentation for, right? It's to tell somebody who needs to do something the information what they, they need to do that. Yeah, thing, what they right? can and can't do, and how to do stuff. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And so, so what we've done is been it's that by pulling things into this data layer that's that's distinct and having a generic way to handle that. That generic way includes having the documentation built right in that describes the data. So, yeah. and also that Seth, as the person doing the like internal stuff, can use that same system to put internal things that only he would want to be messing with, right? Mm -hmm. And to document things for his own purposes in there. At the same time, as he's documenting other pieces of the data to be for a designer to be able to use and interact with, right? And then we can also keep on pushing that. We're now like localization. Right. Usually localization is this extra process where the strings all get dumped into all the text, the English text or whatever gets dumped into some file and then that goes through some QA pipeline or whatever, right? And and that's what we did for, for Levelhead and what, what most people do. Uh, yep. but here but we can it, but actually it was a, just, it was a separate manual thing. Like we had to we yeah, had to put stuff into that system. It's a lot of extra tools. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's and it's disconnected. So we're like we have to come up with an ID system where we're keeping track of, you know, where things are, trying to figure out how things have been updated. Uh, and then it's also very opinionated because the localization system works in a specific way. So then as we're writing code and making data and adding content to the game, like we have to always remember like, okay, how the fuck do we get it in there, right? Yeah. But with this, with this other with this new approach, we can actually build that right in to the data layer. So we can have we can have part of the data as we describe it, as we're like describing how the data is supposed to look. Yeah. So, may, so maybe you say, have like this a, thing is like a weapon. Like you have like a weapon, right? Like, okay, order. this weapon has a name. A name field, right? So by default, we can just be like, oh, this name is just it's just a string, meaning like it's just a word or whatever, yep. right? Um, or we can add some rules to it. We can say, this is not just a string. It's a special kind of string. It's a localized string, right? Which doesn't really mean anything in the moment, but now that that's labeled that way, then we can change all kinds of things around around it so that it gets automatically handled by the localization system just yeah. because we basically checked a box on that. Um, and so so that that's kind of the that's the the time savings that we get. Whereas previously, if we set up that weapon, we'd be like, okay, this, here's the name of this weapon, except now we have to go over to our localization system and set up that set up that name, right? Mm -hmm. Put it in there, hook it up, point it at the right stuff. Um, and uh, and it's just very involved, right? So, yeah. So it, it's been really interesting with the fabricator to kind of see like just how much of what we do day to day mm -hmm. and how much of what we produce is is just 100% dictated by how our tools or how our processes make it easier or hard to do certain yeah. things, right? 100%. And And of course, the fabricator isn't going to – it is going to solve all of our current problems, but it's going to create a whole new bunch of problems that we have no idea. Yeah. And I'm very excited to get to that point. <laughs> new <laughs> uh, opportunities and therefore new problems. Yeah. Yeah. We, we but, talked um, about like our, our big thing at the beginning of last year, as we embarked on, you know, basically major crashlands dev for real at the start of uh, 2021 was basically like, we know for what we're trying to do that we can't, we knew that we couldn't get where we really wanted to go by doing the same things as before. And I think while we If we keep if we keep our processes the same, we're going to make games that are pretty much the same. Yeah, cuz there's again there's there's yeah. certain invisible constraints operating uh just because of the shape of your tools, right? And so what it looked like originally was basically just a lot of tool swapping 
or uh, updating the method, right? As far as like, oh yeah, we'll do some viz dev as like the starting thing as opposed to just systems and, and that sort of thing. And I think what's really exciting to me about the Fabricator in particular is I feel like it's actually the core, the fundamental change to game development on the programming side that we yeah. need to be able to start punching into a whole other weight class as far as like the stuff that we're able to do uh, and just the sheer breadth of stuff that we're able to achieve in a short period of time. And so like, I'm, I'm stoked beyond belief to be able to like mm-hmm. see this thing coming together. Cause I think it's, it's the way of finally shattering the pieces of this problem of making games apart that I think gives us access to, you know, a way of building really a way of building the things we've always seen in our mind, but haven't been able to realize. So yeah, I well, I think one of the yeah, and along those lines, one of the one of the things we've always wanted to have be sort of just kind of a model of how our games worked is a uh, how do you describe it? It's where things interact with each other mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. generic, generically defined ways, right? And there's a lot, and there's linkages between things. Well, it's kind of it's a relationship and systems approach to right. game mechanics, right? So then the so. idea with that becomes that if if you've got your designers off like focusing on the data layer, making assets and, and linking things into each other and, you know, describing how stuff is supposed to behave. And we've got the uh, programmer, you know, maintaining and updating the feature set available to do that stuff with. And the end result of that, if everything gets to kind of talk to everything, you know, in like these really well-understood, well-described ways, is that you can have a really complex system where no one person can actually like describe, you know, like, because you might plug in a new thing, like you'll you'll make a new resource, like in Crashlands too, right? And you like you fill out the form that describes the resource, you add the assets, you do all that stuff, right? And all of a sudden, it just is like in all there of the systems is. now, right? So you might suddenly discover, like, oh, I didn't even realize, like, I didn't even remember that just because there's an item in there, like now all of a sudden this other thing happens and, and can use this item to do it, right? Yeah. Like you might not even realize, like thought about that fact and then all of a sudden that's happening in the game, right? And so this kind of, it's almost like you get to have a discovery process as part of the development experience itself. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to, every single thing that you want to happen, you don't have to say, here's how this thing happens. Here's exactly how this one thing happens and yep. then nothing else will happen. Yep. yep. It's that combinatorial explosion of, of like linked relational well, features. Well, and what's what's really cool about this that's kind of like one last note is just how it, be, because the data is generic, it allows you to create unique experiences. All right. Yeah. So here's a this is this simple is example. Really. Simple example. All right. Let's say in, so Crashlands 2, we've got rocks and we've got a mining pick. Okay. So uh, because of how kind of hard it was to like customize unique objects and stuff, then the simplest programming solution to making mining picks work is to say like, okay, uh, mining picks do like 10 X damage against rocks own, like things tagged as rocks Mm -hmm. and rocks have 90% physical damage resistance. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's basically to say like, if you hit a rock with a sword or an ax or a baseball bat or whatever, you're going to be doing 10% of normal damage in like Technically, you could eventually break it, but you know, why? Um, <laughs> yeah. And then the mine, and so 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 then that's a programming solution. We're kind of like we've created these like overarching generic rules in order to create a specific experience, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, with something like the fabricator, you could then just instead say like, "Here's this new item." Don't even, we're not going to even worry about categorizing it. Okay, it's just it's just a resource. You're going to be like, "Oh yeah, I want this to be a rock." And then in that resource, you can customize the way that it handles taking damage from various things, mm-hmm. right? So you could just be like, oh, yeah, uh, it ha- it resists damage from all these other things except for this mining pick. Boom, done, right? Mm-hmm. And, then, and then maybe you want to make a creature that has like a rocky exterior, right? And you're like, I want this creature to take bonus damage from the mining pick. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to just saying all creatures – have this damage profile. All rocks have this damage profile. Uh, so by by opening up the the ability to edit the data, you can get away from making these sort of like monolithic design concepts where, where things are just like categorized in bu- in buckets, yeah. and you can customize tons and tons of little interesting details on all these different 
uh, things and create far more engaging and you know, realistic, I guess, uh, interactions, right? Mm-hmm. Because things actually are unique. And yeah, yeah. everything just goes to that weird. combinatorial system, right? Because then it's like, yeah. even if you have a generic system, like, oh, things that are tagged, we, like we have these, like a tech concept, right? Where it's like things that are tagged with Rocky, right? Then just like by default, that just can mean a certain number of things because something else could be ta- could be tagged with like, I can do damage against Rocky things, right? Yeah. But once you start now collecting tags and then any one thing will have a different combo but also if you can in addition specify exclusions and inclusions to add and remove certain things then you get that combo of like now you can kind of leverage generic functionality that's already in there and it's like cool fun weird predictable way that gives you emergent properties but then also fine-tune it to make particularly interesting things come out of it unique yeah yeah and so yeah so as we're kind of like re re-engineering the game to work with the fabricator. We also have to re-engineer the way that we think about how we build game mechanics, how we build all these relationships, because in the past, they just had to be so much simpler and so Mm -hmm. much more monolithic. Um, And now they can be very deep and have lots of relationships and interesting quirks and like coming across uh, any given item, like just because maybe like you come across this new kind of mineral or new kind of rock, just because it's a rock doesn't mean that it's exactly the same as all the rocks that you've seen. It's gonna, it's able to have some super interesting custom behaviors on it um, because we can do that now, right? And so, uh, anyways, we should, uh, we should probably wrap it for the for the for the week because <laughs> um, I can, I mean I could talk about this fabricator for forever. It's very. Exciting. But I should probably go. I should probably go build it instead. Go build, <laughs> build it. <laughs> yeah, it will be very fun to show to showcase it at some point, just like with a YouTube video or something. Um, of just like, yeah. what is it? What does this thing look like to use? And, um, and yeah, uh, it's something that I think we should do actually, um, like after we've revealed Crashlands 2. Because, yeah. of course, like one of the one of the cool things about it is being able to make changes just in the running game in the fabricator and then just hit play and then just that changes in the game now, mm-hmm. right? And so, of course, if we can't actually show the full loop. Because we haven't revealed the game yet. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, this is all. Really this like, is all about post stuff. This is like yeah, yeah, how yeah. the how it's made. You know. How does that work? Yeah. But this is something that that yeah. I'm hoping that in time we can start up talks with uh with even like yo yo games or even like put together GDC talk or whatever to basically try to get people to think about this aspect of game development, which is this mm-hmm. da- data management layer, which actually is, I think. Truly, the the secret sauce. Better watch out. Yo Yo's going to try to buy us. You know, think back. We want that. Well, I mean, we'll we'll, we'll talk price. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, all right. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, we'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Jen Coster, for putting the podcast together, and thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, just go to podcast.bscotch.net. We have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the archives. Thank you all for listening. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye.